0: Talks from the National Archives This talk, presented by Jackie Turner, is called Nancy Astor, First Steps Towards a Better Balanced World. It was recorded on Friday, the 8th of November, 2019, at the National Archives, Kew. here today she's modern history lecturer at the University of Reading and she's worked on many projects including the national vote 100 project last year which acknowledged votes for women but also some of the first female MPs particularly focusing on Nancy Astor her current research concerns early female pioneers in politics and that's really led to her work today so I'm gonna hand over now to Jackie thank you very much I'm really honored and privileged to be giving this paper here this year, which is a momentous year. It's an incredible year for me. I'm very lucky. Because this is the 100th anniversary of Nancy Astor's election to Parliament in a by election at Plymouth Sutton, thus becoming the first woman to take her seat in the House of Commons. And as curator of the Astor 100 programme, I've been working with a wide network of organizations, politicians, students, academics, and the public to contribute to the preservation and the legacy of women pioneers in parliamentary politics. As historians, it's inevitable that we look to the past to find synergies and echoes of the challenges and achievements that are evidenced today. And while the lines of continuity are not always crystal clear, they are there. Our present and our future is inevitably shaped by the past and to some extent, those people who inhabited it. Most often we see this through centenary events where we engage with people, people from the past and those pathfinders whose steps we can trace today, especially in today's continuing demand for a much better balanced or representative political world. And it's in this way that we respond to contemporary issues. And as such, and in this light, Nancy Astor, both as an individual and her legacy are important. But being the first is never easy. And as historical totems, they rarely sit comfortably on the pedestals that we force them onto. And as Nancy said herself, pioneers may be picturesque figures, but they are often rather lonely ones. But for better or worse, they are important. They are our cornerstone. So getting on to Nancy, what was the world like for Nancy Astor in 1918-1919? Well, she could vote, I think we can safely say she met the property qualification, and we're all very familiar with that representation of the People Act of 1918, but my students know what I'm going to say next. It's not the only momentous piece of legislation that passed that year. A very small, seemingly innocuous piece of legislation that is of equal importance also passed through Parliament. Hot on the heels of the Representation of People Act came just 26 words that changed British democracy forever. The Parliament Qualification of Women Act enabled women over 21 to stand for election to Parliament. It simply stated, a woman shall not be disqualified by sex or marriage for being elected to or sitting, or voting as a member of the House of Commons. No more, and no less than that. And it was ushered in very quietly about three weeks after the Franchise Bill, and arguably in time to avoid women being able to organise in any great numbers for the 1918 general election. But that no more of no at less has an anomaly in it. Because the irony of that act is that now a woman could stand as an MP, but if she was under 30, she would still be unable to vote for herself. And that was seemingly lost on Parliament, that small anomaly. In her 1926 Parliament, what has the vote done? Millicent Fawcett championed the importance of the Parliament Qualification Act. Fawcett described the act that renders it possible for a constituency to choose a woman as its representative in the House of Commons. It will come to no surprise to anyone to know that very few women candidates stood and very even fewer women succeeded when they stood. Yet despite their small number, the continued presence of women in the House was a reminder of the wider female electorate and the need for progressive gender legislation most significantly the election of women legitimized their needs it politicized too the culture of the home and the family now I can't claim great fireworks for that the achievements of that first cohort of women MPs and they're often overshadowed by the say, pre-war suffrage movement but a more positive evaluation can be drawn from the contribution of the significant number of achievements made by women both inside and outside parliament which affirms the political influence of women despite competing loyalties of gender, class and politics. Conflicting identities uh, characterise the first tranches of female MPs who trickled into parliament between 1919 and 1931. 21 women in that period, took seats. And this very early period, which is the period I love, it spawned very different, distinctly different types of female and politician. The conservative and liberal women were largely elected to their husband's seats or muscled into a constituency by aristocratic or well-connected families via very carefully controlled by-elections. Largely unmarried Labour MPs with strong local government, feminist or trade union backgrounds were elected in greater numbers at general elections. Of the 21 MPs, seven were elected to their husband's seats and a further three were heavily sponsored by husbands or by families. Constance Markowitz of Sinn Féin was elected at the 1918 general election, but along with other Sinn Féin members, she did not and never intended to take her seat in the House of Commons. The first female voice heard in the chamber had a very slight American accent, a Virginia twinge, and she was Nancy Astor. Viscountess Astor was elected to Plymouth Sutton in 1919 with more votes than the Labour and Liberal candidates combined she replaced her husband as sitting mp she placed her husband as sitting mp as he ascended to the house of lords on the death of his father now nancy's time in that seat was initially supposed to be temporary until her husband waldorf had either extricated himself from the lords to return to his seat or negotiated a means of sitting in both he failed he could not So on the 1st of December, 1919, Nancy Astor arrived in Parliament to take her seat. The impact of a woman's presence on parliamentary etiquette and procedure was reported in The Times the following day as a tremendous breach in parliamentary tradition. The Commons was constructed on the idea of one sex sharply divided into two, government and opposition. The Speaker, William Lowther, wondered how he should now address them all. It was always gentlemen of the house. Was it now gentlemen and lady? Mm -hmm. But Nancy was a Viscountess. What did he say? The other great question that vexed poor old Speaker Lowther was whether she could keep her hat on when she was in the house because men had to take theirs off. So who was this interloper? Because she was an interloper or an outsider in so very, very many ways. Nancy Astor was born in Virginia in 1879, the eighth of 11 children born into relative poverty. She was also a divorcee with a small son and she married Waldorf in 1906. She was an abstentionist a Christian scientist, but more than anything else, she was a woman. And everything that went with that, she was a wife, she was a mother, and with six children, the youngest of whom was still a baby when Nancy was elected, she caused a a ripple of concern. So, why was Nancy Astor elected? So in 1918 she was an unexpected and to some a disappointing first woman MP. Suffrage campaigners were initially dismayed that family connections or elitism had secured the first woman MP rather than the political idealism of a candidate from the women's movement. Astor was also an American and shockingly divorced. She had a limited education and very little feminist pedigree, although she was not as ignorant of politics as she sometimes presented. She was, though, a product of the establishment, and to many, including the national local party, this made her okay, actually. She was an acceptable candidate because of her proximity to her husband. However, this arguably negated the work that the Votes of Women campaign had achieved. So why was a divorced American abstentionist with no feminist or political pedigree elected? Well, written responses to Nancy's election and her early career as something novel or something different are far more numerous and compelling than anything describing Nancy and her husband as a political pairing. But despite a little bit of emphasis on continuity in her candidature, it was apparent to Nancy's supporters and well-wishers that she represented something new, even if the details of how that would unfold in the House were yet to be defined. And this is one of my favorite documents from our archive, and it's a petition signed by the female voters in Plymouth-Sutton, who organised to ask her to stand. And it was organised, you can see her card at the top, by Mrs Bessie Lacrasse, and it was signed her faithful supporters. And I think they were just reassuring Nancy, we want you to stand, but we are not going to chain ourselves to the railings of Plymouth Hoe. And it's one of many, many surviving letters to Nancy that illustrates both the public and many women's organisations, and how they embraced her pioneering role, and that blank canvas that stretched before her as the first woman MP. Many of them, women and of course men, sorry gentlemen, but as men of course men, they felt it would be worth them telling Nancy what they thought would be most worthy and deserving of her time and energy. Overwhelmingly, those correspondents of Nancy's positively welcomed or celebrated her difference. These letters make plain how any notion of her as a proxy to her husband or as someone who represented any continuity was simply illusionary. But the idea of continuity might have been a useful device in a campaign to present Nancy as in some way tried and tested lending her a sense of familiarity and credibility, but her position and her standing was nevertheless unique and she was aware from the first day she campaigned that it was also historic. Many correspondents sum up the multifaceted nature of Nancy's appeal as threefold. She was a representative as a woman, as a wife and as a mother which undermined the idea that Nancy could ever have provided a seamless link with what had gone before. It might have been a case of Aster once again, but it seemed likely that the similarities were confined to their shared name and the Plymouth-Sutton constituency. Now the letters that Nancy received on her election and again after her maiden speech in 1920, highlight the extent to which she was viewed not just as a champion and representative of all women and children, but also as a role model to emulate. And these are two of my absolute favorites uh, of those letters. So those letters came from women from all over the country, from all over the world, the truth be known, and women of all ages. And I love Nancy Davey on the left who's age nine and writing to her from another Nancy. And I love the letter on the left, which is the oldest working suffragette in England, who was age 89 at that time. It just gives you an idea of the uh, breadth of letters and who who they came from. So there was an expectation that Nancy's election then would provide a blueprint for other women to follow and help break down barriers. As one correspondent told Nancy, You are no ordinary MP, you are a precedent. Another, perhaps optimistically, described how with Nancy's election, the ice of prejudice has been broken. Such interpretations of Nancy's status and her ability and the possibility as an MP are in keeping with how she presented herself during the campaign. She was quoted in the Birmingham Post saying, My hope is that I may pave the way for other women, who aspire to enter the House of Commons. While she may not have been the first woman to be elected, she was the first in a position to take up that seat, and she was heralded as a pioneer. Her entry to Parliament was described in terms of a watershed or landmark moment ushering in a new era in politics. In addition to her position as a role model and voice for women, What seemed to make Nancy the right woman, in many minds, was her ability to embody ordinary, feminine virtues. Those associated with mothers and with caregivers. In addition to being the first woman in the house, Nancy was the first mother to take her seat. She entered Parliament when her youngest child was under two years old. This met with some approbation amongst those who wrote to congratulate Nancy on her election. Clearly, she was joining the ranks of working mothers alongside many other parents. Nevertheless, in view of her wealth and privilege, it may be in this respect that Nancy was more like the fathers who were entering the workforce than some of the mothers that she was represented. One correspondent commented, it will be a good thing ...to have in Parliament one who knows by experience as a mother the responsibilities of the family. Although her day-to-day responsibilities in terms of her family were very different from the average voter. Nancy's opening speech at the meeting of the party association actually addressed that point. Well, for the most part, the press didn't make a feature of Nancy's status as a mother... It is interesting to note when it did. When it did, it was consistently presented in a positive light, and Nancy was fated as an expert on matters pertaining to motherhood and womanhood, suggesting it was a pioneering asset to her candidacy, and appealing to Nancy's own sense of difference feminism. Inevitably, photographs were circulated of Nancy With her husband and her children nancy's maternal status was a previously unarticulated benefit for any mp and was a legitimate and logical extension of her position as a mother however the significance of nancy's maternal status shouldn't be overstated the idea of nancy as a mother was absolutely dwarfed by the overwhelming and all-encompassing difference of Nancy being the first woman. Nevertheless, Nancy was taken at her word and views as a special representative for the vulnerable and disadvantaged members of society. In much the same way, she was regarded by many as a special representative for women. The observer told Nancy, we are convinced that all your actions in the house will be on the side of those less able to speak for themselves. What does she stand for? Images of Nancy, images painted of Nancy and constructed throughout her campaign were of a fighting woman, a fighting woman for Ply- Plymouth Sutton, a voice for women and children, a champion of the disadvantaged, a wife, a mother, and in turn, a proxy for her husband. Astor's image was constructed and deployed as deemed necessary, one of the most difficult pictures to paint of Nancy Astor was as a Conservative Party MP. Despite her campaign assertion that she was not a sex candidate and that there is a greater thing than party, once in Parliament, there was an early attempt by the Conservative Party to maximise Astor's electoral value and promote her as a sex candidate, following a raft of curious requests on the subject of her parliamentary record on the 22nd of july 1922 astor's political secretary expressed her frustration in a letter to edith picton turberville who had requested the details of nancy's record on women's issues personally she said i always feel inclined when people say what has lady astor done in parliament to rub into them That under our constitution, one single private member can do remarkably little as a rule. That said, Astor's office constructed an account of her parliamentary record up to August 1921, providing details of the questions, speeches, and committees which directly reflect her gender, but which also the Conservative Party felt were appropriate. So in 1922, What's Lady Astor Done in Parliament for Women and Children has constructed as an informal pamphlet that tells you some of the ways in which Lady Astor has tried to introduce this new point of view in helping women and children. I find it really interesting that they talk about it as a new point of view. It's that difference, it's that idea consistently of difference, that she's different to everybody else over and over. And that pamphlet lists the contributions made by Asta under those three headlines, motherhood, children, young people, and then, if you flip over the page, women's handicaps, demonstrating that early fulfilment of election expectations and promises. Interestingly, Asta's early questions in relation to the equal franchise and naval issues for her constituency are not acknowledged at all. I mean, this is early for the 1928 franchise, but she was thinking about it as soon as she hit the ground. It was her, one of her big issues. The other thing that interests me I mean, I know it's difficult for you to read, but it also says that the most useful women members are those who can introduce new subjects that men have overlooked and new points of view that had not even been suspected. To me, that smacks of an idea as there's a right sort of woman who can be (coughs) an MP. Now, it would be disingenuous to suggest that the Conservative politicians had never pursued such policies before. But through this communication, this idea that Asta brought something new really is telling. And ironically, Asta's success as a sex candidate is best demonstrated and measured in areas of politics that were generally perceived to have been neglected by the right. And this document is not only an expression of Astor's work, but it is a carefully constructed image of the first Conservative MP by her party. So, if Parliament in the early 1920s was not representative of society, then Nancy Astor was even less representative of women and her constituency. In the early years, the constituency vote for Labour in Plymouth-Sutton grew steadily. Astor's increasing sense of difference feminism and a very moral stance kept her firmly at the centre of Conservative politics, often enabling her to argue the moral high ground over working-class issues with the Labour Party. In terms of party allegiances during the interwar period, it is difficult to escape the dominance of class in political allegiance. And the Astors were decidedly upper class. Some historians argue that Astor's personal presentation and engaging informality formality drew her away from popular perceptions of the right. And it was her populist repartee, more than any deference appeal, that throughout the 1920s brought frequent requests for her to speak in the open air on behalf of Conservative candidates pursuing working-class votes. Now, this is who she was. This is how the Conservative Party wanted to represent her. But what did she actually achieve? Despite her social position, Asta had to contend with a constant and insidious sexism that undermined her attempts to be taken seriously. She avoided comments on her clothing, by adopting a uniform of a dark coat and skirt, a white blouse, and a tricorn hat. And that set the style for feminine colleagues for years to come. When I I look at it, I've been really privileged to be able to see the original outfit down in Plymouth that she wears. Well, it's been conserved. I look at it. First of all, I have to get over the fact of how tiny it is, because it is really small. But when I look at it, and I imagine it in blue, and add a handbag to it. You, you can see Mrs Thatcher stepping out in exactly the same clothes. So it was kind of a uniform that a lot of the women around her adopted. Not all of that, apparently, according to Nancy, there were a few very flighty, fashionable early MPs, but she didn't approve of that. But she did, she very much uh, adopted that, that uniform. But she took on a culture of misogyny and often outright resentment as she spent almost two years as the only woman in the House of Commons. On the 24th of February 1920, she stood up alone amongst an audience of over 500 mainly hostile male MPs and delivered her maiden speech. And she decided not to make it particularly easy for herself, because of all the things to address in 1920, she chose to address the issue of drink. Now, Nancy was perfectly aware that it does take a bit of courage to address the House on the vexed question of drink. But it did reflect her abstentionist politics and the need for restrictions on the sale of alcohol. She was consistently aware that she was representing her sex as well as her constituency, and in her speech claimed to speak for hundreds of women and children throughout the country who cannot speak for themselves. And in the archive, there are a huge number of letters from women talking about drink. My absolute favourite one, which I haven't got here, is a letter from a woman that says, Dear Lady Astor, every Thursday when my husband is paid, I have to walk up to the office and get hold of his little brown envelope. So because Lady Astor, I can get him past four pubs, but I can never get him past the fifth. She needed her housekeeping, and these are two typical examples, but what's what's noteworthy about them, if you like, is if you look at the addresses at the top. They're not just from her constituents, they're from north to south of England, an example of the type of thing that she received. 1923, she was responsible for the first private member's bill ever passed by a woman. The intoxicating liquor sale to persons under 18 bill, which is the reason we all have to wait until we are 18 to drink, even today. So that bill is still in statute. Was she a feminist, though? Because we've talked about her idea of difference. Well, she would say she was as good a feminist as anyone, and she consistently would say that. She was a pioneer of women in the professions, lending her support to legislation surrounding women in the workplace and the safety of women when they were out on the streets. She campaigned for nursery school provision, school nurses and women's access to the professions, especially the women police. And she had a vociferous commitment to the equal franchise. When reflecting on her career, Asta always claimed, as I've just said, she was as good a feminist as anyone. She'd never had any long standing ambition to be a politician, and she openly expressed that her husband had put the idea in her head, and I should get out of it when he got rid of his peerage. But Asta was a feminist, but she was a difference feminist. Though she was determined to prove that women were physically, of capable of full participation in the rigors of political life as men, she often expressed that in many ways women were different, but in positive ways, that they were more suited to public life as women had more moral courage and were not so easily flattered The concept of female moral courage was something that Aster returned to again and again. It was a constant theme throughout her speeches and in the many reflective interviews she gave after she retired. Asta considered she had a special responsibility to women and children, that she understood their needs and ambitions in a way that men never could. That said, she had a hugely efficient support system that enabled her to work, to serve in public office. And as such, arguably, she did have more in common with men than women she claimed to represent. Esther was also instrumental in pushing through the 1928 franchise. She held her party and Baldwin's government to account for promises they'd made regarding the equal franchise. She worked with suffrage organisations facilitating meetings with senior politicians and acted as a conduit between them and the Conservative Party. She'd often arrange soirees, I love this, she would often arrange soirees with influential men at the family's London home, St James's Square, and then invite women's organisations to meet them, where she never told those senior men who were turning up for a drink and a cigar that there would be all these pesky women there who are going to badger them for women's rights. So, yeah, I love that about her, that, that was one of the things that she did. And it was important because these lobbying women would never have had immediate access to those senior politicians unless it was done that way. They'd have run in the opposite direction as quick as the 1920s brogues would have taken them. But, but all Asta's campaigning, she provided an access through Parliament for women to get their voice heard. But she's not perfect, I talked at the beginning about putting these uh, historical people on a pedestal. And Nancy's career was not without controversy, although some claims against her have little basis, in fact, and have instead become the stuff of legend. I would agree with Nancy's own assessment that many of the negatives about her are amplified or were amplified because of her special status as the first woman MP. Accusations of fascism and meeting influential supporters of appeasement of Hitler at the Astor's country home, of influencing politics outside the democratic process, led communist journalist Claude Cockburn to coin the term Cliveden set, a claim which Nancy called a terrible lie. This didn't stop the press representing Asta as some type of titular head of a group, of the group. Cartoons predict her giving the fascist salute, while far, far, far more senior men danced to her tune. These representations of Nancy led Waldorf to write a very rare open letter to the press in defense of his wife. The notion of a Clifton set has now largely been discredited, but Nancy herself did hold some unpalatable views. She was anti-Catholic, she was strongly anti-communist, and though she denied it, on occasion made anti-Semitic statements. To this day, I am regularly reminded that Nancy described men serving in Italy as D-Day Dodgers. But this is one of those examples of legend. She never did do that and through recent archival research we now understand how that legend came about. She received a letter from three servicemen from the Eighth Army stationed in Italy who were from Plymouth, her constituency, who felt that the country considered those not involved in the D-Day forgotten or D-Day dodgers. Nancy, stupidly and flippantly, responded to the letter, Dear D-Day Dodgers, but, as was policy in wartime, mail to servicemen was first read by their commanding officer, who, horrified by such a salutation, promptly took the letter and wrote to the servicemen's journal. And the rest is typical of... the the legend that Nancy could never quite shake off. And she really tried. She even wrote to Montgomery. Montgomery wrote to the press in defense of her. You see here a letter from Lieutenant Colonel Hill doing the same thing, but she's never, ever, ever been able to, to shake that legend off. And I think it's the same of a number of other things that we associate with her. So what is her legacy? Nancy Astor was a difference feminist and arguably a feminist by default rather than design. She was, at times, also a problematic figure. Though it's inevitable that when we search for history, through history for exemplary figures, for figures who represent their era or a major milestone, that we are often struck by the gulf between their attitudes on a range of things, especially in relation to race, sex and class. For me, today in the 21st century, I find some of her opinions problematic. But to put her in the context of the interwar period and within the society in which Nancy lived it is not for me to condone such views, but it is to understand them. Nancy has become more synonymous with the prejudices of her time than many men who held similar views but escaped similar censure. They have not been subject to the same level of scrutiny. But one of my biggest challenges in this centenary year is representing Astor's personal paradoxes, her unguarded public statements that rarely reflected her private friendships, actions and kindnesses to both Jewish people and Catholics. For me, there is much less comment on the appalling misogyny of her male contemporaries with anything but a self-indulgent smile and an understanding of, it was just the times. Many prominent men had a few good years for which they are remembered, whereas Astor's unpalatable statements were made in the heightened political climate in the run-up to World War II. It also strikes me that Nancy Astor is one of the most pilloried people in the appeasement debate. Yet she was a backbench MP with little or no power. She was surrounded by senior influential men who escaped similar scrutiny. It is her gender that belies so much of this comment, and it is why we judge her, and we continue to judge women by a higher standard. The election of Astor, though, changed British democracy forever. The importance of her election is that for the first time, a woman was able to directly influence the parliamentary debate, ask questions and discuss the writing of the laws of her own land. And it was a responsibility she willingly shouldered for all women. Her arrival in Parliament ushered in a new type of politician, a public woman, a new perspective and a reminder that there was a female electorate who increasingly demanded to be satisfied. As an individual, her courage and resilience in standing alone for almost two years in a hostile house established a platform on which women continue to build today. In many ways, our discussions here are still as relevant today as it was for Asta in all her complexity and with all her contradictions. This centenary and Asta 100 are not only about Nancy Aster, is the memorization of the achievement of an individual that we hope has facilitated a wider conversation about what she represented and the avenues that she pioneered for women to follow. It also amplifies the demand for continuing progress towards political equality. The Commons never, never grew to love Nancy Astor, It remained an MP till 1945. She was not, as her enemies dubbed her, Lady Disaster. She was unable or unwilling to cultivate a parliamentary manner. And while many Aster anecdotes have an eccentric charm, her colleagues grew irritated by her constant interruptions and her audible commentaries on other people's speeches. Aster was an unconventional MP. She admitted herself she was more of a nuisance than a force in the Commons, in part because she lacked any consistent political philosophy. She was, however, a vociferous supporter of equal voting rights and helped spare the women's police force from the Geddes Act. She supported welfare reforms and access to the professions for women. She was also supportive of other female MPs, regardless of their political party. She offered support to Margaret Winteringham, the second MP, when she took her seat in October 1921. I love this. I'm going to have to just interject with this. This is the best pub quiz question ever. Who was the first British woman to take her seat in Parliament? It's Margaret Winteringham. I I love that one. She's interesting as well, Winteringham, because she... um, She never spoke a word. She was was a widow. She took her husband's seat and never spoke a word throughout her whole campaign. But she was so intimidated by the Commons that quite often she would phone Nancy Astor and say, Are you going in today? Because she really didn't want to go in on her own. But she took a seat in October 1921. But Nancy stuck up even more unlikely friendships with each new intake of women, including Red Ellen Wilkinson, elected in 1924. He was a communist suffrage labour woman socialist she won seven elections between 1919 and 1945 before retiring from parliament ultimately astor was a greater success as a cause than as an individual mp her enduring significance was secured the moment she swore the oath as mary stock said she carried the repute of future women mps in here with her in her elegant gloved hand and she did not fail them. Thank you, we'll stop there. This podcast is copyright the National Archives. All rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.